Episode 23, Coach Jimmy Nelson. It's crazy. I always tell people my my story that led to pretty much the biggest mistake, which was the pivot, all started in the first grade. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Hi, welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graben, and we're joined today by Jimmy Nelson, who goes by uh, Coach Jimmy, as we're going to learn about here today. But Coach Jimmy has been a high-performance business coach for over a decade. He uses more than 20 years of experience as a stage and film performer, um, which I I think is a really interesting background. He's crafted that and his own personal story to create a seven-figure business and now dedicates his life to helping professionals craft their own stories to attract and impact the lives of their ideal audiences. So as Jimmy says, tell a story, change the world. We'll have a chance to do that today. So how are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here, Mark. Thanks. So as a storyteller, and uh, that, that kind of puts you on the spot, I guess, to, uh, to hit us with the story about something you would consider to be your favorite mistake. Yeah. You, once you kind of set it up that way, I'm like, well, I better have a good story here. But it's crazy. I always tell people my my story that led to pretty much the biggest mistake, which was the pivot, all started in the first grade. Um, because in the first grade, uh, I was I was exposed to the biggest, um, I would call it the biggest addiction of my life. Um, the first grade, my elementary school, I grew up in West Texas out in Lubbock. And we were supposed to do, the whole elementary school was doing like a Christmas play. But my first grade class was doing a musical number called Too Fat for the Chimney. And I grew up a, a very rotund child. Um, I have a hundred pound weight loss story uh, in my life. And so I was, I was just a fat kid growing up. And back in the early eighties, there wasn't a childhood obesity epidemic. I, I was the fat kid in class and I was the kid from a broken home. And so I didn't have a whole lot of confidence, but this thing was like, the musical number was called Too Fat for the Chimney. And it was supposed to be about Santa Claus not being able to get uh, down the chimney because he was too fat. So nobody was going to get gifts. So I thought, well, if I was ever made for a role, I'm going to be Santa. I'm the fat kid in class. They gave the role to my buddy, Justin Martin, who is the skinniest kid in class. They put a bunch of pillows around him. And yours truly, they put him upstage. All my friends were like in Jane Fonda 1980 workout gear doing like a, like a step number. If everybody remembers, you know, those old fitness videos. Yours truly got put in like a onesie feety pajamas with like the zip up and the drop bottom and the little stocking cap. And they pushed me at the edge of the stage, very fat, um, not very confident Jimmy. And I had to sing a solo. And it was in the midst of opening my mouth for the first time that I got a positive response from a peer group. And I knew right then, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do the rest of my life is be on this stage. But what stinks about knowing what you're supposed to do at such an early age is immediately coming up with a list of reasons why you're never going to be able to do it. And for me, that was physically, I don't look the part, I'm not comfortable on stage, my, you know, my parents are divorced. We don't, we, it ended up being that I couldn't go to college and it really created this root of bitterness in me, right? I really pointed at a lot of people and, and thought, well, this is why they're successful, right? Because they're set up more success. You know, their parents are paying for college or they look the part or they have some advantage on me. 
Um, but it did lead to where I consider kind of my, my biggest mistake was I, I decided to pursue my career in New York City. And one morning I was headed into, I was living in Queens. I was heading into Times Square and it wasn't to be on a Broadway show and it wasn't to do TV work. I was doing a promotions gig. I was probably 29 years old at the time. And a promotions gig is just extra money to do anything. Like sometimes I would do coffee demonstrations at like, like Macy's or sometimes I would be like a filler at a party. And this morning I had to, um, I had to go and put on an, if you remember the movie Newsies, like yep. the 1900 paper boy with like the, that, you know, they had the sling with the paper and the, and the knickers. They had me like put on one of these costumes and pass out chocolates to the oh so friendly New York city uh, residents that morning at 6 AM. And people were rude and some people just didn't acknowledge I was there. And I remember just looking around at all the billboards and thinking, this was, this is what I was supposed to do. You know, this is what I was supposed to be in these movies or in a Broadway show. But Mark, it was in that moment that I really realized I needed to stop waiting for other people to tell me I was good enough to be on their stages and start creating my own stages. And, you know, as you know, some of these altering times in our life, everything doesn't change the next day. But it sends us on a journey to go, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I quit waiting for permission from somebody else and create my own stages? And that's really where everything started, you know, to become a speaker and really starting to train other people. I didn't realize what I'd been going through in school and all the professional acting I had done was preparing me to empower some other people to tell their story and to really impact the world that way. So what about that moment? do you think led to that epiphany, if you will? I don't know if that's too strong of a word, but it sounds like there, there was a moment there where something clicked and you started viewing your situation differently. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's a great way to say it. You know, in, in the performing world, but I think this goes with the business world too. When we're waiting for something, like if you go into an audition, there's usually two individuals on the other side of a table and you're singing a song or doing a monologue or putting something on camera And that person is the gatekeeper to say whether or not you get to go to the next step. And that may be happening for somebody in a job interview. And I think what I I got so frustrated is I was allowing somebody else to determine my self-worth, even though there are so many more variables that go into somebody getting a job or getting that promotion besides just their, their worth, their how smart they are, their talent level. And we don't always know what all went into that decision, but because we don't get the information, we allow that to let it just demoralize us. And, and we think we're not good enough. We're not talented enough. People, other people are better. I shouldn't even try. I put myself out there because the last time this happened, here was the result. And I think in that moment, I, I had to figure out those, there had to be a different way to start doing things. And this was 2007, 2008. So we're talking right early social media. And so it was about willing to go, just try stuff, throw some stuff against the wall and see like, where, how can I make stages? Is there a way that I can get on camera that I can bypass the gatekeeper and just get to the people that I want to impact, you know? And I I think for those of us who are not performers, it's interesting to think about that audition process, whether you are an actor, I have more friends who are musicians Mm-hmm. have pursued that professionally. And it seems like the the opportunities for outright, outright rejection are higher than it would be for those of us who go through um, you know, corporate job interviews, 
We might do yeah. that if we change jobs every couple of years. That's still not very often. So I'm I'm curious, you know, from your perspective or other performers you talk to, how do you how do you try to build up resiliency around that that sort of frequency of rejection? Maybe people who work in sales. Yeah, I was just about to say sales jobs. I work a lot on the workshops that I teach. Uh, I work a lot with real estate agents. I work a lot with financial advisors. Anybody who's, because really an an audition is also sitting across from a prospect. An audition is sitting across from uh, a date who may be your next spouse or literally sitting across the table from your spouse trying to relay a, a message or an idea or just, you know, I feel like storytelling is our biggest key to just relaying an idea or getting somebody uh, persuasion, overcoming objections, you know, but, but you're absolutely right. I feel like in this world right now that we live in, there's such an opportunity for people, even in the corporate world to start creating something of their own online or a side hustle or something. And so every time, let me think about this. Every time you put a social media post out there, there's an opportunity for rejection. I mean, that can be like an audition. That can be, I mean, some people simply lurk on social media and don't post because they're so scared of putting themselves out there. And what I want to do is just come along people and empower them and say, hey, your story needs to be heard because so many people also don't think that their story is a a big deal. Like you don't need the 100 pound weight loss or the seven figure story to have a real impact. And I find really the stories that have the most impact are the ones that people can relate with quickly, you know, where you're like, oh, you feel the same way I do about something that I thought I was the only person that felt that way. You know, I feel like that's where we really can create a connection right now. Yeah. So one of um, your videos and uh, on, on your blog and YouTube, and I'll link to it in the show notes that really um, resonated with me. You talk about the title of it is stop blaming others and start taking action. So you've touched on this in your personal story and I, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I was wondering what, in, in, in your coaching of others, what are some ways that you help people kind of shift from, as I also saw you uh, express it, shift from, uh, it, you know, not letting reasons become excuses and um, instead of looking at external factors, trying to look within to the strength or the ability that we have. I mean, that's the hardest thing I had to do shift wise, Mark, because I remember a time when I was a hundred pounds overweight. I was a three-time college dropout. And my mom had called me on the phone and said, Hey, we see the credit card bills that are coming back to the house. We need you to come home. And I remember I was, I had moved back in with my parents, like at 21, 22 years old. And there was a time that I was upstairs. I came out of the shower. Usually like you wrap up the towel and you keep moving past the mirror. Mm -hmm. And I stopped that morning and I looked at myself and I didn't respect the guy looking back at me. And I just thought, who's going to love this? Like, if you don't change, Jimmy, this is it, buddy. And that was the first time I took personal responsibility for where I was in my life. Because up to that point, it was so easy to say, like I was talking about before, well, I'm not as bad. You're comparing. I'm not as bad as this person or if I had what they had. And so sometimes we just have to sit down, whether that's having a coach come along with us and really just a little tough love to say, hey, what can you control? There's a lot of things right now, specifically where we are right now. There's a lot of things we can't control. It's a scary time, but there is stuff we all can control. And where it started with me was my morning routine. I had to shift. I came from a a waiting tables, bartending, performing background where I'd be up till four and sleep till noon. And as I started down this path of studying successful people, I kept coming back to their morning routines that these people got up in the morning, they got up early and there's things that they did. And and when people tell me, well, I'm not a morning person, Jimmy, I'm like, I get it. Neither was I, but where I was in my life became more painful than the pain of changing. 
And so what I did is I shifted my morning routine to the point where I don't use an alarm, but I still get up early. And it's a mix of my mindset every day. I, I literally have to attack my mind before my mind attacks me. My weight loss was never my biggest battle. And it, it's my, it's my mental one that still goes on every day, you know? And so I have a series of steps that I take every morning that fill up my mindset, that move my body, that get endorphins running, that take care of me physically and mentally journaling. And specifically anybody that, that is in a management mode or is coaching other people or just anybody in their life that they want to have an impact on. If we don't take the time to fill up our own bucket, we have nothing to pour into anybody else. And so instead of looking at it as something selfish, I looked at it as something that was essential to me shifting if I wanted to have an impact on other people. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of having an impact on other people, as you're, you're coaching others, what types of clients do you work with most often? What types of settings? Yeah, I truly believe that everyone has a seven-figure story if it's well-crafted. And so I work with anybody who wants to have an impact. Most time people, you know, that just need more customers. Cool. If, you know, if they have a business where they're in sales or have some kind of online business, they need more customers. I come along and show them how they can use a very simple personal story. A lot of times it comes from their childhood or adolescence or college and how telling a personal story is the fastest way to create no like, and trust with your audience. And so I've worked with everybody from civil engineers to salespeople to real estate. It's amazing the people that come out and say, Hey, Jimmy, I just need to talk to my team and I can't get across to them. You know, I give them facts and figures and I tell them why we should be doing this, but the light bulb's not coming on. And we will run into people all through our lives. There are technical or analytic decision makers and they're an emotional decision makers. And we have to be able to to learn how to communicate in both ways. Mm -hmm. I I obviously, anybody listening to or watching this, it's not going to surprise you that I'm an emotional decision maker, you know, as a creative, but I had to learn how to also come along and explain all the fine print to people, right? Because normally my audience, you need, you need an emotional close and a tactical close. And so, and and I just want to reiterate what I said, any, and when I say close, it's not just for people in sales, simply getting an idea across, asking for that promotion, promoting, you know, coming up with an idea in a meeting, so many people um, don't speak up. They have brilliant ideas that can have a huge impact on the company they work for or, or the company that they own simply because they don't know how to communicate yet. And that's what I love the most is coming alongside somebody, showing them that they already have a story that they don't realize that they have, that if they just learn how to tell it well, either in person or especially, you know, on camera or Zooms now, mm-hmm. um, that they can have such a big impact, you know, on their own personal business or the, wherever they work for and what I hear you saying, it sounds like there's a matter of uh, skills, but maybe also confidence where, you know, people can build and develop skills in different ways. But then there's that confidence factor of, you know, do people hold themselves back because of what they think are external constraints of why they can't speak up or why they can't switch jobs or why they can't start a new company? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, confidence from like anything else comes from repetition. And I share the story, my very first, you know, people will see me on stage. And I think this goes for anybody. You tell somebody, why you look so natural that you make that look easy, which is meant to be a compliment. But what I tell people is my very first audition, I used to be so nervous in front of people that I really had a physical leg twitch. Like I couldn't control it. And it comes from hidden hours and and repetition of trying and being willing to be bad at something. Um, before you're good. And and as a coach, somebody that wants to come along is I want to give some people a safe place to practice Mm -hmm. first, right? That we don't need that very first time of telling that story to be your highest stakes audience. Where can we, 
where can we mess up? And I look back at my days of musical theater in, in, in New York City is the very first time I was ever going to work on a new song was not in the audition, was not when I had a job on the line where if I was going to like crack on a note or forget a line or something, I wanted to work with my vocal coach because I knew number one, it was a safe place to, to make mistakes. It was a safe place to mess up. It was a safe place to try something because sometimes some of the most brilliant things we get as far as telling a story or communicating are happy accidents or stuff we didn't even plan to. And we're like, Oh wait, that kind of worked, right? Let's keep that piece. And so I love just coming along and being able, cause I totally get that, that people don't want to put themselves out there because they lack confidence because they're just afraid of looking stupid or what will people think. And what I love doing is saying, cool, this is a safe place. Let's, let's be bad together. Let me celebrate you messing up a little bit. You know, anytime I get done with one of my workshops, I always tell, I tell my clients, the person that goes and messes this up the first, the, the first is going to win. It's the person just willing, because it's so easy now with so much information, you know, whether it's YouTube or courses or whatever, we can stay in learning mode all day long, but there's learned, there's learned knowledge. And then there's applied knowledge. And we learn so much more by the application knowledge, by the go and trying of an idea or a concept much more than the next book or the next podcast or the next seminar. Both are important, but you've got to go try to put it into action. Yeah. You've got to learn and do, and then you learn by doing. There's a difference between, you know, I hear people use the analogy um, you can't, you're not going to swim like Michael Phelps because you've read a book about Michael Phelps. Absolutely. I tell a story that a bunch of my buddies, uh, that I was in the health and fitness industry with for a decade, uh, they would go snowboarding every year. And I'm not a snowboarder. Obviously I'm from Texas. I do not like the cold, but they were going and they invited me and I was like, okay, it's the guys. There'll be whiskey at night. We'll do this little snowboarding thing during the day. Right. And I spent all this time on YouTube watching snowboard tutorials and I learned more busting my ass a hundred times in the first five minutes than I did watching hours of YouTube videos. You know, you, that's, you learn by putting yourself out there. Yeah. I, I could have, uh, you're a good storyteller. I could have called the podcast, let's be bad together. I like <laughs> Absolutely. Let's be bad together. <laughs> and, and you know what the other thing is about that, Mark, is that I think certain people, I truly believe there is no mistake that we can't recover from. I think people think that there's this big epic if I try it and I'm not great the first time or I embarrass myself or even let's say it was a high stakes situation. Let's say it was that ideal client or it was for that big job that you finally came up and you just blew it. It's you, you can recover from it. Life is long, right? I'm, I'm, I'm 42 years old and I feel like I'm just getting started right now. And I really didn't jump into this entrepreneurial world until my late twenties, mm-hmm. you know, and I look back now at some of the messages when I was first trying to build my business that I would, I was dabbling on Facebook early on before there were ads and stuff. I literally would just like private message people. And so every year on my birthday, I have certain people that I only ever hear from on Facebook, my birthday, and they'll send me a private message, but you can scroll back and read old conversations. And I see some of these people that I tried to prospect or reach out to. And I cringe. It's awful. I just like word vomited. It's so salesy and so terrible. I was like, oh no, Jimmy. Mm -hmm. But I had to be that version of me before I became this version of me. Mm. Like it's embarrassing to go back. I look at some of my early videos. Lighting's terrible. I'm not looking at the camera. I'm like, you were a professional actor. Maybe there's a reason your career didn't go where you wanted it to go. But we, you have, there is no success 
you got to go through the bad stuff. You got it. You have to, you don't get to skip that step. And I think a lot of people think, well, if I could just skip that part. And again, that's why we want to provide people maybe a safe place to go through that step, but you still have to go through that step. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's really, it's, it's encouraging. And I'm not trying to turn this into a free coaching session, but I'll admit like for me, I am still used to being on camera and doing YouTube videos, either individually or interviewing someone I've been doing audio podcast for 15 years. Okay. So there's, I, I feel like I've had more practice. I, I go back and listen to early interviews. I was probably worse at ans- asking questions and see, sometimes I still stumble and I, I ramble instead of asking a tight, succinct question. But then there's that, that skill of being on camera. And I, I, I think, you know, kind of building on what you're saying, I think what's the worst that can happen? Someone might watch the video and say, well, that Mark Raven, he's not real polished on camera. Okay, I can live with that. But if people enjoyed the content and, and the guests and people that I'm bringing to them, I can live with that. And maybe they'll see my growth and development over time. And some people will, will, will gravitate to you because we're not polished. There, there's definitely been times in my career where the performer in me that wants everything to be a Broadway show or an Academy Award winning you know, film has prevented me from putting out content consistently. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's been other times that, I, you know, if I go back to my weight loss story, you know, I, I was, uh, I was featured in, you know, back in from West Texas, I've actually been in two of the top selling in-home fitness DVDs. I'm a part of the Insanity DVDs with Sean T and Pio with Shalene Johnson. And I remember after Insanity came out and it started kind of gaining popularity and people mm-hmm. started recognizing me from that. I stopped sharing my story of being a hundred pounds overweight and the three time college dropout. Cause I felt like all of a sudden I needed to be this super, I needed to be a certain body fat percentage all the time. And I needed, I felt like I needed to be like Sean T like the, 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 the hit, you know, the guy that's leading the DVDs. Right. And what, what happened is my, my business tank Mark, because people started to admire or become fans, but they know, no longer wanted to work with me because they didn't feel people that didn't know me beforehand just assumed, Oh, he's always been fit. He's always been this confident about things. And I had to go back and say, no, wait, wait, wait. I have to remember, I have to remind people where I came from because people want to be able to relate with you. You know, I feel like as, as we tell a story, one of the, one of the key things in the personal part of our stories, we have to be ordinary, extraordinary, and show your heart all in that same way. I, I need to know why you're just like me and you struggle. And then I need to know something that you've overcome. Even if you're just, you don't have to be perfect at it, but maybe you're just a couple steps ahead of me, you know, and just, and then let me know why it's important for you to help me. And I really do feel like that, that's, that's where I start with the people that I work with in identifying that perfect story, you know? Right. So um, speaking of stories, maybe final question here, as you coach people on being better storytellers, um, what's the most common mistake that people make when they're telling a story, whether it's in sales or an entrepreneur telling the story about their company or even somebody at a party telling a story. Is there kind of a common mistake that people can learn from? I have pet peeves. Don't tell me I'm going to tell you a story. I said, when I see it right here, it's when I hear a speaker say, so I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> just tell me the story. Um, that's not necessarily the biggest mistake. That's just the thing that we usually tweak sure. on. I really do feel like Tell it in as if it's happening now. You know, um, when we get into those stories, if you're so far removed, is I really do look at it the, the way you would an actor uh, in a monologue. And 
you know, if you look at, let's say you were going to see a Broadway show and those actors do that show eight times a week over and over. But when you go, you have a feeling that it's kind of the first time they're going through that. Or if they're, even if they're retelling a story, you know, and so I feel like you have to be willing to be a little bit vulnerable um, with a story and then just make sure that it has a, a through line to it. A good story is like, you know, things were bad, they got, and they got good. There's like a hockey stick to that. Or maybe things got good, something went bad, and here's where they got better. You know, and it's just, there's, there's usually one to two turning points that just makes this sweet, clean and easy through line. And like I said, you can tell a compelling story in a minute or two. It really doesn't have to be this long drawn out thing to get across an idea. We have a limited amount of time right here. The stories that I've told so far is a part of a 90 minute keynote I do. Yeah. Where I go way into more detail. So now I have, I have the elevator version of my story just to give people the idea of what I do and why I do it. But then when somebody's like, hey, can you come be our keynote speaker and you have 45 minutes or 90 minutes? Cool, then I can tell you the whole story. But, I get, but, it, but the storytelling works in, in both arenas. Yeah. Well, thank you for the tip. And I'll add a pet peeve is when somebody tries to tell you in advance, oh, this is going to be hilarious. I'm like, well, oh yeah. Now you're already setting yourself up for you're not going to get the laugh. Now. <laughs> yeah. Let me be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you, you keep going. We'll, we'll, we'll find it. We'll, we'll meet back at the end of the story and we'll find out how hilarious it is. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, uh, thank you so much for being here today. Tell people where they can find you online, your website, and social media. Yeah, for those that really want to craft that story and, and really impact more people, they can go to storywellcrafted.com, and I have my how to make a good story checklist. I really just took some of my, you know, memory joggers and things that I look for right when we're getting started uh, with stories. So that's storywellcrafted.com. And I'm on all social media at the coach, Jimmy, the coach, Jimmy. I am definitely going to check out storywellcrafted.com. As we were saying before we started recording as an engineer, I fall into the trap of telling stories that have too much detail and it doesn't move the story along. So um, I, I get, Friendly, uh, loving coaching from my wife on, uh, all right, tell the non-engineer version of this. <laughs> you have two versions, right? But that way you know if you have, a, you have an emotional audience or you have an analytical audience. You, got both, you have both in your wheelhouse. That works. Yeah. And then uh, maybe I'll, I'll share, well, I don't know, to share the link in a way that doesn't seem uh, offensive to future guests. Like, hey, here are some tips on how to tell a good story. But my, my Anything guess, I could do to help, man. My, Mark, but, this has been but, great. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. But you, you Jimmy, and, and my guests, thankfully, have uh, told really great stories on the podcast. So I want to thank you being... Thank you for being on uh, My Favorite Mistake and for being willing to share your story and some tips and advice uh, for others, Jimmy. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to pause and think about your own favorite mistake and how learning from mistakes shapes you personally and professionally. If you're a leader, what can you do to create a culture where it's safe for colleagues to talk openly about mistakes in the spirit of learning? Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. See you next time.